Yeah, I'm already really excited and giddy about this episode. <laughs> Just based on the offline chats. I'm going to have to gather my thoughts to kick into this dark red episode. But Ricardo Gelbiati, I stuffed that up and I nailed it before. But nonetheless, Chief Technology Officer for Australia and New Zealand at the best cybersecurity company in the world. I'm ready for the 2v1 battles against Ben Sullivan here at Palo Alto Networks. Ricardo, thank you very much for joining us on Dark Mode. Thank you for having me. So where should we start? Best cybersecurity company in the world. There's, there's already so much banter started. There is. Yeah, we're in for a good episode. I'm already just like laughing at every word here <laughs> on the inside. <laughs> um, but Ricardo, Ben and I spoke couple of days ago in preparation for this episode and before we get into all the things that we love nerding out about particularly around technological mega trends AI and quantum and all sorts of stuff we actually just wanted to bring it back to the humanities a little bit and we think you have an amazing background in terms of where you started and where you are now so we wanted to just go pretty deep and meaningful and just ask about your journey into quite an amazing role as CTO um, and what that journey has been like for you. Well, thank you again for having me and thank you for the question that kind of sets the, the mood for the day, I guess. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's been an interesting journey, I'd say. And uh, I can also say I'm relatively proud of how I got here because it's not like a well-defined path to, to, to get where I am as an individual contributor. Now, obviously, you can tell by the difficult pronouncing certain that I'm coming from Italy. <laughs> And I was born in Italy and raised and lived over there for over 30 years. Uh, and then I moved here in uh, 2010 for multiple reasons, including love, by the way. Uh, and uh, I started my career in Australia, which went back to basic. As you know, when you move as an immigrant, you go back to, um, you know, the first job that you can find, really. And um, that for me was in network engineering um, and, uh, and a bit of network security now. Obviously, I, I did graduate back in Italy uh, at the University of Milan in computer science, and, and I did have a good four-year stint in uh, cybersecurity as a consultant, cybersecurity consultant. So when I moved back, uh, when I moved to Australia, I started that journey back towards security from the network angle, um, and uh, I changed a couple of roles um, and eventually uh, became a trainer for uh, actually Checkpoint. Checkpoint uh, Software Technologies, so one of the big competitors of, of Palo Alto Networks. And uh, because I knew their uh, uh, software and I knew their products, I could teach them. And then I got the attention of the actual Checkpoint tech, uh, Software Technologies company, and I got hired as a pre-sale engineer over there. Now, that's interesting because I, I also say at the same time, that was the first time I felt I actually found what I was born to do. You know, when you are trying to find a job and you move into different motions and you realize, actually, this is exactly the right balance of, you know, interaction with people, knowing of technology, being close to cutting edge or, you know, yeah, bleeding edge, uh, new inventions and, and evolutions of things. And I really enjoyed my year and a half checkpoint. And from there, I, I got effectively poached from Palo Alto Networks because they were interested in a, in a similar role. Uh, but working for them. And it was perfect timing, I have to say. And because um, uh, at the time, Palo Alto Networks was up and coming in, in the industry, uh, as in the, especially the network security industry. And um, that was the perfect moment to switch across. And I worked in that role for three, four, 
five years. Um, and I realized that I was kind of hitting a ceiling in terms of what I wanted to do and where the role was going. And the options that were put in front of me was to become a manager, meaning a people manager, or to become a specialist. Specialist in one of the sub areas of, you know, the portfolio of Palo Alto Electrics. And none of the two was really, were really what I was looking for. Uh, so I kind of started shaping my own path and I got uh, very friendly and uh, with uh, John Kippenberg, who you have interviewed a few episodes ago and who also invented Zero Trust. And I started saying, hey, John, since you can't come out here to Australia very often, how about I cover the region for you when we want to have Zero Trust conversations? So he was super helpful and we had mentoring sessions for months. I developed some, uh, let's say, content of my own that he uh, proved and, and obviously encouraged me in, uh, in continuing developing. And then I kind of made a little bit of a name for myself in the zero trust space over here in Australia. And when John left uh, Palo Alto Matrix a couple of years ago, I became the de facto zero trust subject matter expert for the region. And with that, I started being able to have in different conversations with customers, more at, at the executive level, more at the influencing element, and effectively created this individual contributor path uh, at a more of an advisory strategic role. And from one thing to the next, when a CTO position opened up, um, I put my hand up and they say, well, you're already doing that role pretty much. So sounds like the place you should be. How I good. It. I love it. So good. Got lots of okay. questions, Ben, but surely I know you want to jump in there. Well, I've got heaps as well. So <laughs> let's, uh, let's, let's just start firing away. I, I love the fact that you created your own role, Ricardo. You know, there was a point in time where you said, hey, John Kinderberg, how about I cover? You essentially just had the foresight to see what was missing, understood that there was a gap in the market and were able to ask the question. That's such a powerful thing. And, and for the community that are listening, I think don't be afraid to make the ask is probably the, the biggest lesson in that, to, to define your own journey. You don't have to follow the traditional path to get to where you want to get to. Have a look around, understand what's missing. And if, if, if you haven't found that, what you want to do, as Ricardo said, when he found that point in time as an engineer, define it for yourself. Ask the question, what's the worst that can happen? They say no, and you move through the path again, or you can shift left. Fully agree. And, uh, and yeah, that was, uh, and in fact, the good news also that now that I've done it, there's a path for other colleagues of mine in the company to go down the same route. Uh, and uh, as Gabe very well knows, we have created also some sort of uh, ambassador program or so on that where we are teaching or, or say even running the day-to-day -day life or the experiences that someone in a role like mine or, or peers of mine go through on a daily basis so that you prepare yourself with those out-of-the-box thinking skills, uh, engaging executives at the right level, being able to sustain, you know, uh, media questions as well, which is part of the role. And all these things I, I wasn't born with, obviously, I had to develop. So kind of train along the lines of that. Uh, but the idea is uh, this path is now available. So other people will go down that path and I'm very happy to have been the one opening it. Yeah, it's very cool. And I can absolutely attest from my own personal lived experiences. <laughs> I recently sat in the hot seat, which I refer to in the inner circle as the pressure cooker, which was <laughs> literally with Sean Duga and Ricardo. And they, we role-played uh, a 15 minute interview with Tracy Grimshaw about all the hard hitting questions around security. And there were some very curly moments. That's for sure, Ricardo. So I very <laughs> appreciate your astute leadership 
in that domain. <laughs> I hope I'm not on the other hand now and you're you're kind of having a problem. Yeah. <laughs> We're ready. You ready for this? <laughs> Sorry. Ricardo, I've got a question for you. Um, you, you mentioned John Kinderberg as a mentor. I've been having a lot of conversations with people in my own circle about mentorship and, and the power of mentors and understanding the, the right mentor selection. I'd be interested in your thoughts, how much influence did mentors have on your journey to this point? And then if you wouldn't mind providing some advice to the community on how to approach people to be that mentor figure in, in your professional career. Absolutely. So John Kinderberg Kim, John is one of my mentors for sure. I had many, to be honest, in my career. And uh, some of them offered themselves out saying, look, if you need anything, I'll be happy to help you. And they were in a position obviously, of hierarchy that I could rely on and get a lot of help out. Some of them I handpicked myself, um, and one of them being Sean, obviously, Sean Duca, we just mentioned. Um, I realized quickly uh, that when I joined Palo Alto Networks, there was a role that if I was aiming to be somewhere in five years, that would be it. And, and, and that's when I asked Sean, hey, I want to learn everything you do uh, from that uh, point of view. And, and he was more than happy to show me how his thinking process goes, how he makes research for information, how he engages. Uh, he involved me in his day-to-day -day activities when he was running uh, round table uh, events for customers, uh, brought me to meetings, uh, showed me how to run interviews, put me through the hot seat, as we mentioned before, for the first time. And I'd say one advice is in the majority of cases, there are a lot of people in positions like that, they are willing to help, but because there is this kind of executive fear, you, you feel like you shouldn't approach them because they are either too busy or too important for, for them to, to care about you. No one asks that question. But once you do, and if you, you know, go through it with, with the request, you, you find that we can't wait to help people to get in that position again. We, we want to make ourselves redundant eventually. Uh, be early for me, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> to make myself redundant from this position. But it's a great feeling to be able to show that, look, I'm, I haven't got where I am on, on my own. And I want to show that whoever wants to go down that same path can have my full support. What's, uh, what are the key lessons that you learned, Ricardo, in the journey into CTO? And I'd love to even just narrow the scope into, as you, as you went through that pathway, you started to have more executive conversations around Zero Trust. What does that evolution look like? in terms of your own professional development, but of course also what you learned when you were having conversations with executives and even just opening up the dialogue and breaking down those barriers with those different people. Yeah, that's interesting. So obviously coming from a technical background, and by the way, not everyone comes from a technical background and become, you know, at a CXO level of position, but I did a path from a full technical hands-on type of engineer to the pre-sale engineer, as I say, which is a mix of, you would say, sales acumen and you know, strategic thinking and technology knowledge to now being a little bit more hands-off to technology. I do still keep across it a lot. I am more in the strategic and uh, big picture type of, of discussion. And I think that that's exactly what I've learned in that journey. So. A lot of the time we get hung up into the pure technology discussion. And uh, as we know, there's a new tech coming out every month or every cycles of technology, say, sorry, cycles of technology innovations are so frequent nowadays. 
Um, so we, it's easy to get excited. It's easy to get stuck into what's the newest shiny toy that we can have. And in cybersecurity, this is so common. Um, every year there's a new trend. Um, but at the executive level or at the influence in C-level, there has to be a way to talk at, from a different position, from a different angle. I mean, the consolidation side of things is the angle that I've found resonates the most with any executive in the cybersecurity space. Consolidation, uh, thinking strategically, not being hung up onto technology, um, uh, trying to do more with less uh, has become what resonates more at a high level instead of thinking smaller picture, maybe one piece of the puzzle and going down the technical route. Love it. I agree, Ricardo, even in my day-to-day, the consolidation and this platformization, which is yeah. absolutely a new word made up by Nikesh Aurora or Nerzok, who knows, but we love making up new words, particularly on the Dark Mode podcast. That's my job. Um, yeah. I'm shocked you didn't think of that one, Ben, actually. <laughs> trademarked that. Could have sold that in a few years, you know. But the consolidation, particularly as we, as we speak about in tougher macroeconomic times as well, reducing risk. Especially across security, I really enjoyed the narrative around cybercrime is quite a nuanced and unique global problem, and it requires a different mode of thinking and a global solution as well. And as it relates to the technological layer, the consolidation means a lot of benefits as well, you know, around better security efficacy, things like that. But it is really the key trend at the moment. Of course, overlaid by trends around AI and the acceleration and adoption of new technologies and, and the like. So I find that's a really interesting narrative at the moment. And I even really enjoy the other observation that I've had fairly recently in the market around the rise of the CTO, but not the chief technology officer, the yeah. chief transformation officer. And so those mega trends are really interesting to live through. And I think they're closely linked to transformation for companies and just wider society and also where we go from a technological footprint and rationalizing those sort of a myriad of point solutions and the like. Yeah. And, and as you said, the chief transformation officer is uh, a role that I don't think existed only a few years ago and it's becoming more and more popular because what I also noticed is that because we are so hung up into fragmentation of technology. So there's a new product for every new feature that we might want or desire, or we don't even know it exists. In most cases, these tools are also run in a silent manner from a team's perspective. So we have teams that uh, are effectively running individual products or focus on individual budgets for individual technology solutions, and they hardly talk to each other. In most cases, are competitive to each other. Um, like uh, just recently, I think it was. Was it yesterday? Yeah, probably yesterday. I had a conversation with, with a customer that was telling me how they are moving away from, you know, uh, data center um, based security stacks and, uh, and uh, applications, and they're pushing them into the cloud. And so I, I talked to them about the SASE or Secure Arts as Service Edge model and how that could help them. And after their entire conversation, all they told me is like, oh, it sounds like you have DLP. I want to have a conversation about DLP because we have a DLP initiative today. It's like, Okay, that's all you got about the entire conversation about transforming the network from where you are now, where you're going and consolidating uh, capabilities, putting them in a single place, having consistency of policy, consistency of user experience. All you want to hear is DLP. So you see the, the mindset of think niche, don't think big picture is still there if you're talking mm -hmm. to technical people because 
that's what they care about. But if you elevate the conversation and then you think about the people who make uh, the decision of the purchase or they make the decision about the actual transformation, the chief transformation uh, officer, for example, they need to think transversally, not just DLP. What, uh, how does the network improve at the same time? How do we get consistent security, as I said? How do we get best user experience? So that's the conversation that I like to have. That transverse thinking, do you, do you, do you see that in, in your conversations at sea level or is it still one trap mind uh, looking for a solution to a single problem statement or is the, the thinking starting to get a bit more of that transverse, more broad, more understanding of the business problem as a whole? It, it definitely, at the executive level, that's what they care about. And by the way, when I say executive, people think that I talk to CSOs uh, only or chief security officers or chief information security officers uh, or maybe CIOs, which is true, but there's also the, chief, um, uh, the CFOs uh, conversation that is becoming more and more prevalent. So what you realize at the end of the day is that if you are going through a transformation that involves multiple point products that the tech team has now managed to embed into their uh, architecture, but it's hard to manage at a higher level, consolidation of that becomes also advantage an advantage from a financial perspective. And the CFO sees value in uh, reducing the number of tools because there's you know, better results from a licensing perspective, there's better results in dealing with less security vendors, um, and so they can help, let's say, sustain the business case for the reduction of fragmentation. Nice. That's really cool. Just quickly, Ricardo, are there any other C-suite stakeholders that you are having really prominent conversations with outside of Office of the CISO, CFO, Chief Transformation Officers? Let me think. So CIOs uh, is as well uh, one of the, uh, let's say, segment of the C-suites that I am involved with, they are becoming less tied into the pure running and operation side of things, but more into the, um, how do we secure these operations? I, I say that this has changed in the last five to 10 years, uh, realizing that cybersecurity is not so much an IT problem anymore. So you're not just focusing or delegating, oh, cyber is something that IT will take care of, the CIO will take care of, you know, resilience and just keep running. When cybersecurity and the digital assets that you're trying to protect are critical to, to the organization and if they get compromised, the business is impacted, then the visibility of who holds that budget, who makes those decisions escalates uh, much more. And even the reporting lines, I believe, have recently changed or are starting to change again. Uh, the, there, there's normally uh, uh, chief, sorry, chief risk officers as well uh, involved, and they used to be uh, tightly aligned with the CSOs or CISOs. Uh, CFOs tend to be still reporting line for the uh, CISOs at the moment, but I see it more changing towards the CISO reporting to CIOs as well. So uh, again, a bit of fluidity and, and move around in the reporting line. And, and again, it's driven by the importance of these technology decisions and what part of the business gets affected. Yeah, nice. You see me on mute there. I think uh, World War Three has just kicked off on the Gold Coast out the front of my house. Unsure what's happening. We'll give, give everyone an update later. But uh, the conversation around platformization, uh, I had to practice how to say that word in my own head, um, it is, is certainly uh, a value conversation when it comes to the CFO and everything. I still think there is value and significant value in 
best of breed integrated architecture um, for, you know, cross-leveling to but ensuring that there is that integrated architecture program to support, you know, what we're all trying to achieve, which is the uplift in cybersecurity across all levels. Mm -hmm. um, how much emphasis do, do your conversations have around that integrated approach to ensure there is not siloed technologies as the move towards platformization occurs? Yes, great question. So keep in mind, so platformization is a new word for sure. Mm. <laughs> and I think it's, it was our CEO, as Escape said, that came up with it. I, the backend, did he think that out? Probably. Uh, he's a very smart guy. Uh, but the idea of consolidation in itself, and especially in technology, is kind of a repeated pattern. If you think about the last the evolution of 30 years of technology in general, not just cybersecurity, how many times we've gone through the idea of uh, we have great technology in different areas and we can actually merge them into a single place and make them work 10 times better. I still think about sometimes the, uh, I think, was it in 2007 when and Steve Jobs announced the iPhone. They said, it's a music device, it's an internet device, and it's a phone. It's a, and, and it didn't announce that. And people were like, where is he going with this? And it finally announced the iPhone as that platform that effectively converged internet access, music listening, and phone capabilities in one. That was unheard of. Now, did we have smartphones before? Yes, but nothing was even close to the level of platformization, if you want that the iPhone received at the time. And um, so it's a, a conversation that I have on a daily basis. And now, the best of breed versus platform conversation is also an important one. Uh, people think that they need to give up on the capability if they embed it into a platform. And the reason why they think that is because I think they have bad examples in mind. And it happens that in some cases, companies go down the path of platformization by performing acquisitions and barely integrating the product or saying, oh, now it's part of the portfolio, but we'll either retire from the market and try to bolt it on what we are doing today, or we will run it as an independent business on its own and keep selling as it was before. And still, we'll call that a convergence. And as I said, people get burnt. They don't get the value out of it. While true platformization is maintaining the key best of brick capability, but embedding it in, into a platform and delivering it as almost as a service. And it also kind of makes it easier to consume. So you, you want to have these features um, extensible and, and growing through time and evolving over time. Um, and uh, that's, you can only do that if you have a platform, a well-built baseline platform, which you can continually grow and offer to your customers. So it's, yeah. Sorry, Gabe, I was just going to say it's, it's, I think it's such an important conversation to have at all levels of business is to one, understand the problem statement two understand the technology that you have invested in, and then three work around the, the investments you've currently made, understand if they are good investments, redefine the problem statement, according to the technologies that you have invested in and ensure that you've got coverage across, um, you know, a single platform might not have the capabilities that you need. So therefore you need to look outside of that to understand your problem statement and match to the technology to bring in. And then you need to identify whether there is that integrated architecture to support the platform investments that you've made on the other end. Yeah. And then by the way, so no platform has it all, right? So no one is claiming, oh, one platform rules them all at all times, yeah. especially when the pace of technology 
is uh, moving so fast. Like five years ago, no one was talking about API security. And then now, uh, because especially in Australia, we had breaches that involve directly API security. Everyone is after an API security. But do you go down the path of, oh, I'll buy a point product for that. Or I look towards a platform that has capabilities in the area and is actually developing an API security add-on that you can consume when it's ready or if it's ready uh, at the same time. So that's uh, uh, the other angle. And, and you say something interesting because the fear also is, well, I'll assess what I have today. And I know that a platform can do, let's say, 80% of what I do, but I'm not ready to rip and replace this stuff. It's not like I can take all out and replace it with a platform. And, and, and that's one important differentiation. If, if it's a good platform, you should be able to start small and grow. So you might have one product that is either not delivering on its promise, or maybe it's running out of steam or contract licensing and so on. And you are thinking about replacing, and that should be your uh, foot in the door towards the platform, your first anchor point where you are growing your pl platform for. And then whenever the other products you realize are, again, not either integrated as well or functioning as, as you should expect, when it's the right time, you start migrating that functionality into the platform and then you multiply the benefits. Completely agree. Uh, you also mentioned acquisitions there, Ricardo. We've seen over the last couple of years, prior to the current economic conditions, that we've been in the midst of the era of convergence. Uh, acquisitions mm -hmm. have just were happening left, right and center. It seemed to be every week there was an announcement of multiple acquisitions, not a single one. Do you think that that time's passed or do you think that, that we're, we're not even started in terms of the area of convergence, noting that RSA this year had the most representation of startup vendors that they've ever seen? Yeah, no, I think we, we are still in the early days of the acquisitions pro, uh, especially in the cybersecurity market. Um, as I said, too much quick technology advancements in a short period of time. Uh, create that fragmentation and some ideas are great. Some ideas are unfortunately going to die because they're either going to get absorbed, absorbed into other uh, capability and functionalities that are, think about the problem from a wider lens as opposed to that niche specific uh, problem. Um, but it's great to see many startups. I mean, I'm, I'm all in favor for you know, startup and out of the box thinking because uh, you're clearly solving a problem that no one else has, has thought about before. Now, what that creates though is one more product for, for the industry to consume. So. Uh, it's normally proving the value of what your invention is about, that it's what makes uh, startups very exciting. Uh, but eventually, you know that that consolidation is coming. So no small startup will, I don't see those uh, startups at Ozelf today becoming, you know, the next Palo Alto Networks in the next 10 years. I see that there are too many big players at the moment uh, that could, would have, let's say, the risk of going unnoticed is pretty small. If you have a valid product, you have a valid solution, you're most likely going to be acquired. The hope is that you get acquired by someone that can integrate you and not kill you off. That's a great perspective, Ricardo. I really appreciate that. The interesting thing about startups and innovation from a personal experience element, we just had a conversation last night with the chief innovation officer of Team A. They are based out of Tel Aviv have the strong pedigree from the sneaky squirrel, secret squirrel, 8200 out of the IDF. Some very, very impressive people working in the startup ecosystem. So unique 
VC fund that helps build cybersecurity startups and also has a very wide ranging CISO community, 350 CISOs across the globe in the CISO village. And just their innovation process is very much getting CISOs together, saying, what are your biggest pain points? How can we help? And where I'm taking that is um, a resource that I'm really enjoying that they've developed out of teammate from that community engagement. And this is a segue into what I want to ask for perspectives on. They have authored a CISO guide on the risks associated to the enterprise for generative AI. And I thought mm. the way that they actually brought that thought leadership to the market and published some really tangible guides and insights and threat levels associated with each risk was really consumable and easy to read. We'll link it in the show notes and I'll share a copy with you as well, Ricardo. I'm sure you'll find it really interesting. Um, but I'd love to get your perspective on that in general, but also, of course, at Palo Alto Networks, Nikesh Aurora, our CEO, came out publicly and said, we're also developing our own large language model, data sources and the rest. And I've had personal conversations with CTOs in strategic partnerships over the last month who've come to me and said, what is Palo Alto Networks' stance on how generative AI is really impacting the future of enterprise security? So... You know, this is now, I'm sure, another four episodes of dark mode <laughs> on the topic alone. But have you got perspective or any interesting anecdotes that you'd like to share just around the whole transformation that Gen AI is bringing, but, you know, artificial intelligence in general? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, look, AI, I mean, let's not go back to talk about ChatGPT and the fact that it's made AI, but it's true, it, it made AI a democratic issue. So everyone now knows about AI before all the experts in the field, you know, of, of, you know, fields where AI was needed. Think about self-driving cars or think about, uh, you know, spotting new patterns in cybersecurity uh, architectures and, and, and malicious activity. Now everyone talks about AI, which is a great thing. So it kind of moved the technology into the public realm. Now I, I see at the moment AI when organizations talk about it, they think about it under three dimensions, uh, in my opinion. The first one of, of which is AI is now publicly available, as I just said, which means my employees will use it. Like it or not, they will use AI to optimize their flows, get a, uh, you know, a, a better, uh, better efficiency in their, in their workflows, as I said, um, to get quicker answers, to effectively cheat sometimes the system. Because in most cases, if you think about it, AI has a lot to do with cheating. We can do the things that AI does, but AI does it so much faster that why would I waste time in doing it uh, myself? So cheating how do I... Productivity. Yeah. Cheating or productivity? Cheating or productivity, Ricardo. It's a mix of both. You know, cutting corners um, is... It's sometimes seen as a negative, right? So if you're cutting corners, you're doing things poorly. But in reality, with AI, you can cut a lot of corners and do things better. So it, it is a bit of both, in my opinion, which is interesting. I've, I've recently become a bit obsessed with AI image generation. And I realized that you can, uh, you don't have any more. You know how much time I spend looking for images to use in my presentations, right? You need to find them and you need to make sure that they are not uh, you don't, they don't have royalties, they, they don't have watermarks and all this kind of thing. And then I realized, hang on, I actually can generate my own images on a whim like that. In, in, in 30 seconds or less, I can build pretty much what I want. And the re refining them is another story. You know, there's a lot of detail that can go into an image generation. 
And that's where, you know, the th famous discussion, uh, we're not going to be replaced by AI, but by people that can use AI to its full potential because the detail of the prompting, as you know, how to create a prompt to either chat GPT or to an image generation can become very professional. You need to know some keywords. You need to know how to structure the, the wording and so on. But going back to the original question, so employees, my employees will use AI one way or another. So is there a risk in or into that? That's the first conversation that I, that I hear a lot. Um, and as you know, Gabe, at Palo Alto Networks, we have gone through the ebb and flows of what to do when we ourselves use AI. And it has been clear that we can use it, but be careful of what you send up to AI because that's someone else's AI. It's not Palo Alto Networks AI. It's most likely open AI, ChatGPT, and sending data over there, meaning handing over data to a third party. And we can do that. In, especially in our business and in cybersecurity. So controlling what goes up is one conversation. The other one is, I'm an organization that uses, as we said, multiple tools, some of them fragmented, some of them integrated, and they are all now on the hype of AI. So all of them will embed some AI functionality that will supposedly improve their capability. What are they doing about it? And how is that going to improve me? And which vendors are going to go down the best path of AI that I want to retain and, and who else instead is falling behind and I might, you know, push out. So that's an interesting conversation. Lots of organizations like the ones you mentioned are asking us, what are we doing with AI? How our AI is going to implement um, advantages? And to be honest, when we're talking about large language models and generative AI, the majority of the functionality improvement is in the uh, quick gathering of information or in that, let's say, avoiding user interfaces, clicks, um, and finding information in a manual way, but getting it out of the system by simply asking the question. So effectively putting a chat GPT in front of your products that it can answer questions about how the product is functioning, uh, what are the current metrics, so where things could be improved, where are the most risky areas that you should look at. Uh, so getting answers quickly, again, Cheating, if you think about it, cheating on the user interface. So not having a user interface by having a dialogue with the interface itself. Um, and that's a great space. I think AI can do much more than that, to be honest. And we might get into that in a second as well. The last one is companies are thinking to build their own large language models, like as much as, as we are. And we don't have details yet. I think uh, we have to wait another month or so before we know exactly what Palo Alto Mentors is going to uh, announce for our own generation of uh, large language models. But at the same time, how do I, does my own co company and organization benefit from the capabilities of AI? And uh, on, still on the topic of convergence, if you think about it, AI is bringing data convergence. It's one thing that big data and data analytics existed for, I don't know, over 10, 10 15 years now. Um, but AI is now converging these big data sets into a place where it's so hard to have an analyst figuring out what's going on that you need an artificial intelligence to analyze and make sense of it and extract it valuable information. Of. So that convergence is happening in data and AI is the answer. And processes that can be improved within a company with large language models are still getting explored. Honestly, there's, there is so much that can be done. Um, even internally at Palo Alto Netos, we have been putting up ideas of how to optimize processes and flows that are currently leveraging our own 
data, customer data, all um, you know, research that has been done around other people's presentations, uh, even documents that continuously get recreated and put in front of audiences and customers that are re we are reinventing the wheel every time. And instead, an AI algorithm could absolutely summarize them in something consistent. So there are a lot of uh, benefits in using AI into your own company and building your own lab. Which so these are the main three areas where I see AI progressing a lot. I love all three of them. I think <laughs> I've saw Nick from nodding along that entire time. That was fantastic. That's such a big investment. Is uh, I'm interested to see what happens with that um, the Palo Alto Networks large language modeling because that's it's such a large investment in terms of compute storage um, and then understanding the, you know, the values of that. Yeah, everything. So, but I think the the value that in return is exponential. Um, so I'm interested to see how AI impacts the security market. Um, as it relates to technologies like Palo Alto Networks, uh, like Dragos, like all of the, the ones that we see and we love, even the juggernauts like yourselves to see where that impacts and how it impacts from a customer level. As you quite rightly mentioned, Ricardo, with, with the, the data piece, we have such an amount of data, especially with some of the products that Palo Alto Networks has, to be able to correlate that, provide context, and then uh, human understandable for the, the, the people at the other end of that data to make a database decision is critical. And with AI, and especially we'll probably move into the quantum piece now, we're able to converge that to provide higher levels of context in the correlation path to then provide specific data-driven decisions for outcomes at the customer level. Yep. I think that's, I think that's just going to be an interesting space to see. The whole time you we were talking, I kept thinking about uh, what, what that means for the customers and, and, and how much uh, of an impact it's going to have on the uplift in cybersecurity. So I think it's an exciting space to be in when it comes to AI, the convergence of AI, cybersecurity, and quantum. I'm just so grateful that what a time to be alive. Like, yeah. thank, thank the powers to be that I'm born in this generation at this time. So it's just so interesting and so much exciting opportunities happening. I uh, had a conversation yesterday, uh, Ricardo, which I think you'll enjoy. I was with a, a CISO and they mentioned, uh, it was an event and, uh, and I asked about AI and how it's impacting their business and the questions that they were asking of their organization. You know, are they asking the questions of the board? Are they asking the questions of the fellow C-suite? And then are they asking the questions of their organization on what levels of AI are they using? What are they using it for to try and to try and understand that and he said he's using the gravity law which is what comes up must come down so being careful of what you put up into the, to the ai systems and what comes out of the ai systems uh, and ensuring that you're doing your fact checking after but you're also doing your fact checking to make sure there's no ip going up i found that interesting the gravity law as it relates to ai i mean it's a it's a problem with any data ingestion system that you know Data goes in, data comes out. The quality of the data that goes in determines the quality of the data that comes out. And, and all the, there's also the bias element. So obviously, if you feed, uh, if you train the system with highly biased information, then the answers are going to be biased as well. Um, so the, there's there's a lot of that conversation happening in, in AI. The interesting thing is obviously, as I said, AI, especially cybersecurity, is nothing really new. Um, Companies have been using AI for specific tasks 
that again, humans could not be asked to do because of the sheer volume of data processing that would have been required. Um, and for us, Palo Alto Networks has been always around, you know, the identification, for example, of uh, malware variants or, or things that were never seen before. If you have hundreds of millions or in the billions of samples, training the system with that becomes not trivial, but I'd say using AI to recognize patterns that tells you before you execute something, if it is malicious or not, purely on how it looks. It's exactly how AI and, and uh, let's say, models have been generated. Uh, but what's the next step? That's an interesting one. And I, I know that one of the big propositions that we are trying to push for is the fact that, especially in the security operations center, is where humans in the cybersecurity space are getting the most overwhelmed. And when there's an overwhelming of flows and activities that are relying on human carrying them uh, along, that's a good place to start cheating, as I was saying before. <laughs> that's where you want to put a machine to do the heavy lifting and instead let human think creatively. Because AI, although ChatGPT can sound very creative, it's because it has been trained on very creative data at the same time. By AI, uh, sorry, uh, human intelligence is still out of the box. AI, in my opinion, will not get to that point uh, for a while. Um, so you want effectively AI to do the heavy lifting, which means everything that can be recognized as malicious or suspicious, and it can be acted upon immediately, should be taken care of by an automated script, an automated uh, playbook effectively triggered by AI. And then let a human help whenever we come to a roadblock, which is not so different, by the way, to how autonomous driving is at the moment. And I had a lot of think, uh, thinking time around this issue and the, the analogy uh, among the two, because I, I, I have two cars now and uh, I, I might even have to mention the brands because of the comparison there. Uh, but one car had ability to steer itself and drive along the highway and uh, detect the cars in front and slow down if there's an accident for a while. But the feeling that I had was that those were driver assistance model. So the driver, I was still driving and the car was helping me out in the process. And I recently had a Tesla. I, got, I bought a Tesla a couple of months ago. And if I turn the autopilot off in that car, the feeling is exactly the opposite one. So the car is driving itself and it only asks me to intervene if it's not sure what's supposed to happen. And I clearly feel the difference between the two models. And at the same time, I think they're highly related to that consolidation piece that we were talking about at the beginning, which is the idea that you know, car number one has lots of sensors that have been put together around the car and the car is trying to bring information from each one of these sensors and making sense of them and helping the human drive safely. While in the Tesla use case, as you well know, the sensor components are getting removed. So there are actually less sensors than used to be three or four years ago. There's no more radar, for example. There is no LiDAR at all. Uh, there is, uh, in some countries, also no ultrasonic sensors, which are the parking sensor, effectively. And the idea is that why do we need individual point sensors when we can use high-definition cameras that can solve all these problems at the same time and consolidate and provide much better and efficient data to do full self-driving? 
Now, there are obviously objections to that model. Is it working as expected? Is it going to evolve as fast as, uh, as it should? And propositions for and against it. Uh, but I see that as a consolidation element and true use of AI because the uh, neural networks and models that have been uh, trained upon this massive amount of video and visual data are working exactly for the purpose of the car driving itself and the human coming in to help. For the moment, and maybe in the future, not even having to help anymore. Yeah, I mean, at this point, I'm just going to go straight to buy a Tesla. So there's that. <laughs> That's a great perspective there, Ricardo. I'm excited to um, see that analogy continue to come to fruition because I think that comparison there on the autonomous vehicle side, self-driving stock, has a really strong narrative. So very cool. I just went into a full rabbit hole then about Tesla Vision and yeah, that's yeah. that's what I'm doing for the rest of today. So I appreciate that, Ricardo. <laughs> um, I, I love the the whole Tesla sensor and where it was derived from. Uh, it was based on, and for people that uh, are interested in rabbit holes as well, which I know a lot of the community are, have, have a, I'll link it in the show notes. Um, essentially, it was based on the human iris uh, and all of the touch points with the human eye. Uh, it's a really fascinating story with how they developed Tesla Vision initially. And the evolution of that and what's to come, I think, is going to be even more exciting because it will add more value to that autonomous car, um, which I think is just going to, uh, that's such an, an interesting space to be in as well. I was just saying that it's interesting because, I mean, in the words of Elon Musk, again, uh, like or not the guy, he said, you drive the car with your eyes, you look around. Why do we need to have, you know, laser beams coming out? You don't need laser beams coming out of our eyes in order to drive a car safely. And I know there's a lot of, uh, you know, outrage in some countries, not in Australia yet, for the removal of uh, the parking sensors side of things. And again, I thought about it. when you're parking a car, when you didn't have parking sensors, what did you use? Well, your vision and some estimation. But the best way ever to park a car has always been send your mate out and tell it, come, come and come. So using vision to tell you how far you are from the car behind you. So if a camera put in the right place can do that, why go down the path of having millions of, you know, sci-fi sensors to tell you? How far you are from a wall? Well, you could go the old school point. method, Ricardo, and just uh, use touch. Just, yeah. That's you park your car, Ben. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, it's slightly on trip. It's a very Italian way of parking. <laughs> are you seeing really Italian, Ben? This is what you're telling us. <laughs> so great. Well, Ricardo, we're going to have to get you back for another episode on surely autonomous vehicles. Then, of course, on quantum technologies. So I'm excited for that. We'll lock you in for some subsequent episodes. But thank you so much for joining us on Dark Web today to give your astute perspective on all things CTO and the, the world of tech. I've really enjoyed listening to your perspectives and the analogies and your insights day to day. So really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Much appreciated uh, all your questions and the insightful conversation. So let's have more in the future. Love Thanks, it. Man. Thanks, Ricardo. Cheers, guys. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our YouTube channel or leave us a rating on your favorite podcast platform. See you on the next episode of Dark Mode.